Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Whoop, whoop. Today, we have Jen Elizabeth on. Jen has dedicated her second chance at life to addiction recovery and healing from childhood traumas. She is a recognized writer, speaker, and recovery activist living in Southern California. She shares her story, The Wreckage and The Reckoning, as a way to keep the light on for anyone who is suffering under the darkness of shame and silence. She grew up in a home with a mentally ill mother who had bipolar Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy. She was also born in Santa Barbara and moved to Mobile, Alabama with her family when they joined a cult. At five years old, she was molested by the main leader of the cult as a rite of passage for her family. She didn't tell anyone, and that lasted until she was nine years old, and they moved back to California. Jen also struggled with an eating disorder that would take different forms, bulimia and anorexia. Jen wrote and released her book, Shape of a Woman, in January 2019, where she shares the deepest and most raw parts of her story from childhood to addiction and now recovery. She is the mother of two beautiful children and has turned life around with eight years of sobriety. Her story is amazing. She's done a lot of really cool work, and I'm so grateful that she joined us. And her toddler daughter joined us and was super quiet and well-behaved the whole time. And if you've ever been around any toddlers, you know that that is quite a feat. So amazing on all counts. I hope you enjoy this wonderful, wonderful woman. Check her out on social media, resurrection underscore of underscore me, resurrection with a K. And... Her book, Shape of a Woman, on Amazon by Jen Elizabeth. All right, episode 24. Let's do this. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you have a book out, Shape of a Woman by Jen Elizabeth. And um, when did you write this book? Um, I wrote it about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. It took me it took me about six months to write, but I, I'm a writer anyways. So I had a lot of, you know, journaling and there's actually four more books coming. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are they all cool. written? No, gosh. I'm okay. in the process of the second one. But it's all, you know, the first book is very much a generalized, just kind of just my basic, you know, touches on my life story. But then the following books will be specifically designated one to my addiction, one to um, being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, one towards the mother wound, and then one towards, I think, being a mother today. Yeah. Yeah. That's Uh the plan. That's the plan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We all we'll know see. how plans go. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you are clean and sober eight years. Yeah. A little bit over eight years. Yeah. That is wild given everything that you've been through. Yeah. Miracles. Yeah. Definitely. It's awesome. That's awesome. And you have two young children. <laughs> yeah, I do. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Wow. So <sighs> revisiting this stuff, there must be a lot of, you know, like putting yourself in the shoes of your, you know, what it was like 
you know, to be a young child. I, for me, when, uh, when I started to, when I became a parent and started to talk about what happened, I started to realize how young I really was. Did any of that happen for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I look, oh, so much, you know, I, my son is six and, um, you know, when I, I started getting molested around four and a half, five. Okay. And so I just look at my son and I just, it's crazy. I right? could see myself and yeah. it's just like, I never felt that young because I was put in so many adult situations right? from, you know, my family to that, you know? So, but I look, yeah, it makes me sick. It makes yeah. me sick. It mm-hmm. just definitely, it brought a new perspective for me. That was definitely my, my takeaway. So you, you grew up in a home with a mentally ill mother mm-hmm. who had bipolar Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell <laughs> us about that. That's uh, that's no small, small story there. Right. You know, it's, it's hard for people to understand because, you know, I get a lot of the, but she's your mother they're your family. You only get one family, you know, and, and I understand all that. I, I really do. And I, and I understand that it's hard for someone to grasp the concept that not all mothers are capable of loving their children, but, right. but it is true. Not all mothers are capable. And so I happen to be born to one that is not. And, you know, she was always trying to kill herself and, and more so for attention because that's part of the Munchausen. It's doing things to harm yourself and harm your children to get the attention that you are craving. Right. Um, it's not so much truly wanting to kill yourself. You know, she always did it when I was home and she would make, be very loud about it. And I would have to beg her because at that time I was a little and I thought every single time was real. Right. Of and course. I would search, would the, I would search the streets with the police looking for my mommy and, and, and inside my brain just think, I just want, why doesn't she want to live for me? Right. You know, and I would beg her and, and it never worked. And she would mock me and say, you're, I'm too emotional and I just need to let it go and all this stuff. And so I learned really young, like, you know, that, that, bared so heavily on my self-worth. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I was starving for acceptance and love. And, you know, I, I just never got it, you know. And my dad, he's just, you know, the typical codependent, you know, enabler and just, you know, it's just such a mess. And where did you guys grow up? I was born in Santa Barbara, but when I was two and a half is when we joined the cult. And so they they moved us all to Alabama. Okay. So let's back up just a tiny bit. Can you talk about, I've told my story, so I know how this is. You're like, it's like, oh my God, that was a lot in like 10 yeah, seconds. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, no, I'm used to it. It's, it's good. Okay. I, I think, a, I don't know that a lot of people know what Munchausen's is. So um, right. I think that is something just to, to touch on. And, and uh, so a little bit about what it is, uh, maybe some examples of what that looked like, and okay. then how you discovered, like wh- how you came to the realization that that's what was going on. So Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy, it is a very difficult diagnosis to come to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's not widely understood. Um, and it took a long time and a lot of years and a lot of doctors to finally figure out that's what it was. What, what it is, is the people that you see on the news that are like 
on the surveillance cameras that are smothering the babies. And as soon as every, all the medical staff run in, they let the pillow go and that they're the savior. Or there's moms that put toenail clippings in children's wounds to give infection. It's like this desire to, they need that um, attention. It's like their identity. My mom does it to herself, which is Munchausen. And Munchausen by proxy is to a child. Now, I have a younger brother. and Uh, he's a two and a half years younger and she actually, he is more her victim in that sense. Mm. Um, he still lives there in their house and he's 40. Oh my gosh. But I'm talking, you know, if it were, if, if he were, you know, a child today, she would be in in jail because it is criminal behavior. It's not her fault. She is ill. She is, she does have mental health issues, you know? But it is what it is. And, you know, but he's an adult. So there, there's that. But, you know, she would always be in the hospital having surgery she didn't need. Doctors would be throwing their hands in the air, like not sure where this pain is coming. She also is an opiate addict, which just, it's like the cycle, you know, right. I don't know which came first or, <laughs> you know, who knows? Right. I mean, it's so twisted that I don't even know. I do know that, you know, when she was a teenager, she was suicidal and locked herself in the apartment and would, you know, all these fiascos, always fiascos and always wanting attention. And so, you know, I think the opioid addiction happened as a result of the surgeries and stuff. the surgeries and depression. And, you know, she's tortured inside, you know, I, I love my mom, you know, yeah. and I wish that she could find healing, you know, but I can't hold on to that forever because her, her behavior is abusive. And right. I, and I no longer will tolerate it. And I have children that do not need to see it. So right. unfortunately that's the way it is, you know, but. So with the Munchausen by proxy with your brother, so Munchausen, you, um, you know, you, you are harming yourself. They're yeah. sick. You are constantly in the hospital, you know, in the surgeries. hospitals. Yeah. 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 So, um, and, and a lot of the time actually, which I'm sure, you know, interestingly people who have Munchausen, eventually they become legitimately sick. Um, My mom is legitimately sick now. Yes. She's yes. bedridden with yes. a multitude of for real illnesses. Yeah. 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 So eventually they do become incredibly, incredibly legitimately ill, but it doesn't start out that way. But Munchausen by proxy is a new level of that. There's a really um, great, great being, you know, uh, an interesting word to use, but a great depiction of Munchausen by proxy in the TV show, Sharp Objects um, that just came out. If anybody's curious, that's a good um, like understanding about more about it. But with your with you, what did what did that look like in terms of her doing my brother? Yeah, and she didn't do it to you at all. I don't remember. Okay, I think once my brother was born, she dropped me like a hot cake, and it went to him. My brother is also mentally ill, you know, I hate this, the word mentally ill, has mental health issues, Yeah. Um, bipolar and borderline. Yeah. It's so, she's, I, I don't even, I think my brother's extremely traumatized. That's what I yeah. think really is yeah. what it is. Yeah, totally. But, you know, she always had him, always had him in the, in the hot, in the doctor. She swore he had seizures and I never saw a seizure. So she had him on lots of medicine. You know, she's never encouraged him to do anything but stay home with her. She used to have him sleep in her bed when he was like in his twenties. 
you know, bizarre stuff. You know, I think my mom prefers to use herself as far as like, you know, like for instance, she would have seizures on the right side. Right. I mean, she would drop down in front of me and have these horrible seizures, scared me half to death. Well, like a few years later, this neurologist said, but she has a little spot on her right side, which means that should affect her left side. And it like blew everything in my whole family out of the water. You know, it's like, nobody wants to accept that, that all this stuff is part of her mental health. It's not all the, you know, you can't grasp that because then, you know, it's like, oh my God, look at everything that we've been through in and out of hospitals thinking she's dying and all this stuff. And then you're telling me that it's all a lie, you know? Right. It's my dad, you know, it's mind blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's another good, um, a Netflix special about that girl. I think she ended up killing her mom. Oh, um, there's a Netflix movie. It's a true, you know, true story documentary, but I, I don't know if she ended up killing the mom. I thought she Our did. Our producer's looking it up. Our producer's looking okay. it up. Okay. Yeah. That's an excellent, and I have not seen the full thing yet, but I do know the story yeah. where she was severely abused by her mother who had Munchausen by proxy. And then I think her and her boyfriend may have ended up murdering the mother. Yeah, you guys look it up, but yeah, I, think it's, we'll look it I up. think it's named after the daughter. Or okay, the mom, okay. But I mean, that yeah. it doesn't sound like, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Know, oh, right? Like, sure. <laughs> I oh. mean, it definitely checks out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. It's called okay. Mommy Dead and Dearest. There you go. That's it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Direct. Oh, what a great. So the director is Aaron Lee Carr, who is an amazing yes. documentarian. Um, that is an excellent, you know, I've followed that story in real time and right. I have not seen that documentary itself yet, but I, I heard it's amazing and that's Amazing. exactly what it is, you know? Okay. Yeah. That's great. This is a great, so anybody who's, yeah. um, anybody who's interested. So, okay. So you moved to Mobile, Alabama. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, from Santa Barbara. So not only did you join a cult, which yeah. you'll talk about, but you also Joy, moved from a, like a culture shock. I mean, I, is there a is there a better culture shock from yeah, right, Santa Barbara? Maybe New York City to Mobile, but mm, maybe, no, maybe, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty gnarly move. Yeah, How old were you all, when you left? Well, I was two and a half when we all all the families gathered together. We all left all all of our friends and families. We weren't oh. allowed to speak to our families our natural families, you know, and we all went across and traveled across 35 families. I think it was that we oh went gosh. and we all traveled across to Mobile, Alabama. Yeah. What was the name of the cult? times? It was called Gulf Coast. It started off. Okay. Called Gulf Coast Christian Covenant or something like that. And that was, it was basically a church, you know, um, yeah. a fanatical church, but you know, I, my parents thought they were joining a church that was supposed to you know, they wanted to raise their families in a more wholesome, less worldly environment. Um, everybody, yeah, everybody ate in the same co-op. Right. Um, we all went to the same school. We all hung out with this. Everything was all the same. But as years goes on, which it happens in so much, you know, organized, organized yeah. crime and cults and stuff like that, you know, things get more and more disgusting and more and more control. And there was financial abuse, spiritual abuse. And, uh, you know, obviously sexual abuse. So the cult leader, how did your parents find out about this, this movement? movement? 
Yeah. Um, I think they were already going to churches, you know, and I think somebody, you know, I don't really know some friend of theirs must have tried. They all, there was a group of men that ended up traveling over there to meet some of these people. To check it out. Okay. And they came back and said, how freaking wonderful it is. And there's like this big Christian movement and, you know, we all got to go there. God's there. Right. Right. God's in Mobile. Um, in Mobile, Alabama. (laughs) Obviously. Um, so so the so you go down there. You're how old at the time when you make the move? Two and a, well, I mean, oh, I, you're I two and a half. Maybe I was three because my brother was just born. Okay, and then you get down there, and it's you said it starts out, you know, normal, not nothing remarkable, other than nothing the culture shift, and other then, than the culture shift. Yeah. When do you start to notice? Hey, something's something's not right here. It took me a long time to notice something wasn't right. But when did I actually begin being molested? That's a whole different question. Okay. So when, when, okay, because I really felt that. When did, in retrospect, when did things go south? Yes. In retrospect, um, I think I was probably about seven when I started, when the, the experiences with him became more um, graphic and more uncomfortable. So let's talk about that. Who was, who's, who's the leader? It was an what elder. Was, it was okay. So it was, yeah. an, so there were several elders. Several elders. It was one of the elders. Okay. And, um, you know, the thing is that predators like that know which children are safer. Of course. And I came from a broken home. Yep. I came from a home of complete chaos. And that church knew so well about every family that they actually had folders of each family with personal information per family. My dad was even had to discuss the type of sex he had with my mom with his particular shepherd. Everyone had a certain shepherd above them. Right. So they knew everything. They knew everything. Right. I was number one, my dad was poor. We moved to Mobile, Alabama. My dad was in construction and and it rains there all the time. So financially we were under their thumb. My dad never moved up in the ranks as far as in in the shepherding movement. So he stayed at the bottom of the totem pole. My mother was an absolute wreck. So I was a perfect target. They never, you know, I, I, it's just, you know, it, it all makes sense to me now as I'm older, but I remember one of the things that, that was required of the church and I'm putting quotations up because it was not a church. It was a documented cult and it was disbanded as a documented cult, just so everybody knows. Yeah. Okay. This is not church behavior or not appropriate church. This is cult behavior. Right. So one thing was you had to tithe 10% of your income to the church every week. And so my dad could not afford that. And and I don't know, my dad is very weird about talking about all of it. And and we actually were a part of a documentary of several years ago that never ended up finishing. But um, a boy that I did grow up with, he started making a documentary about this movement. And um, so I do know a little information from that, you know, but um, I know that um, my dad cannot afford it. I don't know if we were being threatened to be excommunicated. You know, here we're isolated, segregated. We don't talk to our family hardly. We'd have no more friends besides those friends. And, And my, you know, it's so much, so much abuse, you know? Right. And so I remember... I don't remember exactly when, and I don't remember exactly every single time, but I know, I do remember being called into this little office and sitting on his lap and um, memorizing Bible verses because we all had to memorize Bible verses, you know, 
and he would play with my hair, you know, and um, sing me songs. And, and it was a tent. I was starving for love. Yeah. Yeah. I was starving for, for someone to tell me I was good. And, and, you know, and so, you know, I didn't think anything of it and he never told me not to say anything that I remember. Right. But I never did. I just, you know, somehow, and in therapy years down the road, I realized that even as a four or five, six-year-old little girl, I knew that I would not be protected or believed. Right. And so I just somehow put all that together on my own. And that's why I say I never really felt like a little kid. There was so much adult in right. my head already. Right. right. But over time, the playing with my hair and stuff like that, you know, turned into much more graphic stuff. And you know, he put his mouth on me. I had to put his, my mouth on him. I then internalized that and thought that I ate people and, and mm-hmm. all these weird things that just in, made me feel dirty. Right. And made me feel, you know, I, and I say this when I speak, it wasn't so much the secrets that I kept. It was in the keeping of the secrets that destroyed me over time. It was that I swallowed everything I was worthy of saying of feeling, you know, I disown myself. I abandoned my body to him for the sake of affection, for the sake of survival. Right. But do you know, the the thing that's, that's important to note about that, and I'm sure the, you know, you've worked through a lot of this, but so there is research out there that talks about the more times a child is hugged and loved, the big, the faster their brain grows. So right. they've done research. They, and, and there's actually been like not, you know, on purpose research, right? They've researched situations where children who were born completely healthy, intact, but were completely neglected. I mean, not right. touched, not talked to, and they are mute and there's nothing wrong with them. But right. that is a part, that is a, it is a human need. I mean, I, 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 you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of, you know, shelter, food, water, like, I think that that as a young child, that affection and love and someone talking to you and those things, they are in that hierarchy of needs. So in some ways, I think that, you know, when I've heard this story before, you know, this type of story where a child who's totally out on their own and not getting what they need, and then they feel guilty because they got what they need from this sexual predator. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And the reality is, it's so confusing because you actually really, that is, that, that's, you know, there's a, um, I know a story of, of someone who was starving, literally didn't, the family didn't have food and he would go next door and the, the neighbor would feed him and they, and then molest him. And it was like, well, you know, you as a child know that you need something and you make this trade and you don't really understand it. And then the comprehension comes in and that's when all the, you know, but deep down it feels dirty and wrong. Yeah. Right. Totally. I think too, you know, you don't say anything and then you, it shifts into a a feeling of participation. Right. Right. Totally. Like what did I do? That is actually the last hang up, if you want to call it that, that, that I've had to release is that feeling of participation because I never said anything. I never fought him off. Right. I, you know, there is moments where it is somewhat, I don't want to say the word pleasurable, but it's not horrible. Right. Right. You know, it's a yeah. happy experience because you're getting, like you said, you know, and, and I'm so young. 
but yeah, the whole not saying anything and, and never making a stink about it. You know, people assume that, Oh, someone tries to touch my kid. They're going to scream and run. Well, no, let's be real. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't really happen. Well, and and you know, and it's, and the situations are, are almost always incredibly complex. There's someone who seems safe, you know, you, right. We were looking at it from a, an adult comprehension, right? It's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. So that went on till, you know, a man came around and started. And the only reason I know this is from that documentary, just which the documentary was called The Flock. And he started it on um, Kickstarter or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure what ended up happening, but I do know he ran into so many walls when he went back to Alabama. So many people did not want to talk to him. Mm. So you know, um, it was very psychologically controlled. And, and so I think there's a lot of people that did not want to share their story, which is understandable. So, you know, maybe that's why I didn't complete it, but there was a man that came around that started trying to secretly rescue families from the situation. And so I think that gave my dad a little clue that maybe this was wrong. Mm. You know, my mom never wanted to leave. My mom loves that church and she still loves that church to this day, to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad was, you know, he wanted out. And so we, I remember we were one day there and then the next day we packed up. Nobody was there to say goodbye to us. I never got to say goodbye to my friends. We were just gone. Where'd you go? Back to California. Okay. We came back to California to my dad's parents. We had to stay there for a little bit. I remember when I was nine. Yeah. And, and who knows what it would have happened, you know, I would and have been even more screwed up. My gosh, I'm so glad we left, you know. How old were you when you left? Nine. Nine. Okay. Nine, Nine. and a half, yeah. Okay. So you were you were pretty aware. And and so that's how the abuse stopped. Is that's that you how left? Abuse. Yep. Yeah. Did you know of anyone else who was experiencing that? I mean, we can assume, but <sighs> you know, I, I don't I, I ha I did see, I think I saw another girl in there one time, but I can't be sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I, I know how much it has shaped the way that my life went. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I've hesitated, I, you know, I've, I have not persecuted this person either. And I did uh, a few years ago, I did look into it and the answer I got from the lawyer. I mean, this, this is the kind of thing that makes, you know, it's so hard to report when it's been so many years was yeah. that he literally told me, it has been so many years and with your past, yep, yep. you have no foot to stand on in court. I'm just going to tell you right now Yep. yep. because they're just going to drag me through the mud because of my addiction right. and all my legal problems. Right. And, and so, you know, some people gave me a hard time about that. Well, you know, you should do it anyways and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I always say this, number one, that's shaming a victim, but to con- that's continuing to shame me by telling me how I should handle it. And number two, I own the pen to this story now. So it can I can change the way it ends anytime I want. Right. As for now, I'm okay. As for yeah. now, I feel the story's out. And the people from some of the people from that church, and most of them have a bad taste in their mouth about that whole situation. Yeah. They support me. Yeah. And they of course say they were unaware. <laughs> and I don't know if they were. My dad was, well, we can get into that. But when I did tell my parents I was 26 years old. And I called him on the phone from a jail. I was in a jail, an in-custody drug program. And I, it was the first time I had ever cried. I had to watch a, a, a documentary about sexual, childhood sexual abuse. 
it was part of the program. Mm. And I watched this girl and I, I felt heat fill my body and I was shaking like a leaf. And I, the first tears from my little girl just came mm. and I thought that I might die right there. Yeah. It just all hit me that I, that I, it was, I'm not make it's real. Yeah. That, you know, I can't shove it down. I can't try and paint a different picture. It's not, you know, I did feel it was my fault, but it wasn't like I, I didn't want it. Yeah. And I called my dad and the first words out of my dad's mouth was, I thought something like that was going on. Now, how did that make you feel? At the moment I was going through so much that I just kind of blew over my head. Okay. I, I, I remember, I, you know, I, I knew it sounded odd. You were like, yeah, it, it yeah, registered, but didn't. It, yeah. But as time, ta- you know, and that wasn't my clean date or anything. So I used way longer, but, um, you know, as I've been going through this journey of healing, you know, that statement, especially now that I have children, that's, that's horrible because, you know, my dad didn't want to make a, make a scene. He didn't want to cause any conflict to even to the point of being under suspicion, possibly that his daughter's being inappropriately touched or whatever, you know, to just kind of shove that aside, you know, you know what, and what comes up for me about that the amount of mental illness that you describe in your mom, and again, this is like, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking here over here. But yeah. <laughs> um, what comes up for me is, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, with intergenerational trauma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a stupid question. Of course you are. <laughs> um, so, but it, what comes up for me is like the the level of mental illness that your mom had and then passed down, right? And then your dad marrying your mom. Mm-hmm. And I, all I can think is, and your mom wanting, so having the, you know, the bipolar, which that is more chemical, which is who's right. to say, right? Right. But definitely with the Munchausen and the Munchausen by proxy, the need for attention, the starvation for attention, and then your dad marrying someone of that nature, what comes up for me is, this is, these are, there were generations of people mm-hmm. in your family who did not know how to protect one another and give, and give one another what they needed at the time. And so, you know, I don't know, again, I have no idea what that looks like, but I'm just thinking like this, when you paint this whole picture of trapped in this cult, this will save our problem, you know, away from yeah. the family, the whole thing. I and and he's like, I thought something like that was going on. I think this is someone who didn't have the tools to, to wouldn't have this is and not not in a defense of him, just in a no, right. like taking a snapshot of like this family. They yeah. and 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 that's why you were yeah. you were chosen in that because it was apparently clear that the parents had no tools. Absolutely. For sure. Oh yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about my dad's family. Yeah. It, it, it definitely didn't start with them, you know? Well, and that's the value of all the amazing work that you've done, right? Is that right. we, because you picked up the pen and you are saying, I fit, I get to finish how this story ends. Right. And, and that, trauma work stops that that trauma stops with the trauma work right. and the releasing of those secrets and all of the things that you've done 
it's so that you are the last generation that has to go through all of that. That, you know, and it, and, and people tell me, and I always think about, okay, well, my children, but the big picture is it's my children's children and their children. Right. And it's like, I don't realize how freaking, you know, it's so epic, like what is happening for me. It just feels like I'm just, you know, I just want to protect my, my children. I don't want my children to suffer the way I suffered. And I no longer feel I'm worthy of suffering either, that I'm worthless and all that. So like, we're just kind of, I'm just healing myself. And, but, but the bigger picture really is, is that, you know, my children are going to grow to be more healthy and then their children. And, you know, God, I, I pray that the whole generational of just abuse and, and I mean, my poor family, and then I say this, like my mom, my dad, you know, the way they've existed their entire lives up to now is so, it's so heartbreaking. Right. Totally. You know, and they look at me like, you know, they're not too thrilled with me. (laughs) I I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, yeah, I can, I just, I would imagine on one end, I'm grateful that they are so like trapped in their own illnesses because they really don't branch out much to see how much I I'm out there. <laughs> they don't even, <laughs> they don't know how bad it really is. They don't know how bad it really is. Right. They, you know, and there's, and they're always so medicated. So, you know, I have told my mother about my book. I don't think she remembers. Right. Right. You know, and she did ask, was she in it? And I said, yes. <laughs> and she said, uh oh, <laughs> But then it never got brought up again. So, you know, I, right. I, I don't think they know. The, they're just so in, in, engulfed in their own misery. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. You know, but it's a blessing for me because right. if they were like out and like had face, you know, they do have Facebook, but I don't think they, you know, but if they were like savvy to all this stuff and like, yeah, it might be a bigger mess. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote my book, you know, under my middle name for that reason, because yeah. I, you know, although I mentioned no names in my book and I still don't mention names in any single podcast I do, I'm, I'm not about shaming anybody else. I'm about releasing my shame. Absolutely. So I don't mention names in the book and, you know, but I y- did not use my last name specifically in case somebody wanted to come back and try to sue me for, you know, slander yeah. or some yeah. ridiculousness. I'm covering my butt, but yeah. Yeah. No, it, I mean, it happens. So, so oh, yeah. you're, so you start drinking and using Vicodin to numb the pain mm-hmm. um, because it works really well. <laughs> it works <laughs> really it well. Until it doesn't, but it does when, in the beginning. It and, saved me. Yeah. I, I, and I, I fully, you know, I, I believe this, that, you know, alcohol and drugs did save me. Yep, save I, my, I was close to possibly trying to kill myself. I would, yep. I would lay in bed at night and as a little girl and just squeeze my skin. I remember squeeze it so hard and and like hopes that magically it would come off and I would be somebody else. I was so tortured inside. And so when I was 12, I I found a bottle of vodka and I, and I was an alcoholic from that first moment because, you know, and I shared the story that I, before that little glass was halfway finished, I I was, I was already scheming in my mind of how I was going to get more and drink every day. It was the first piece I'd ever known. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. For and sure. I, I, I totally relate to that where it's just like, I think back to the behaviors and mine, you know, the, I, I'm sure you relate to this, but it was for me, it, alcoholism and drug addiction was 
a long list of behaviors. And that had I not done that, I could not have survived in my skin. I would not. That there was no continuing to live in the pain that I was living in. And that that prolonged my life to a point where I could get sober and stay alive. For sure. Absolutely. So you were addicted to heroin and meth. That's, mm-hmm. where, that's where that led. When, yeah. When, how old were you when you first started doing um, heavier drugs, heroin and meth? I think I was, um, let's see, maybe 22. Okay. I was, I was pretty hooked on, you know, Oxycontin and, and stuff. And I was so sick dope sick. You know, I, I was yeah. out of pills and, and if anyone has ever been through that, they know it's mm-hmm. indescribable. <laughs> and I was desperate. And I, a guy said that he had his friend coming over and I thought they're going to bring pills. So I was just thinking, you know, thank God, you know, I'm so sick. And the guy showed up with heroin and a needle. And at that point you're so desperate. Yep. And I didn't give a shit. It doesn't even seem that scary at that point. It really at doesn't. At that point, I'm like, please help yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am in bad shape. Yeah. And from that moment on, you know, I was addicted to, you know, I was a heroin, IV heroin user. I added meth to the spoon. I did both together. Um, I was addicted to the needle as well, yeah. which is something not a lot of people talk about, but absolutely addicted to the needle. And um, for 15 years, about 15 years. Wow. Yeah. And I, I don't know how I lived. I, I Sometimes I think that the meth must have saved me from I don't know. I don't know how I didn't OD a million, million, million times. <laughs> I don't know well, if the meth or combination or something. I mean, it's it's bizarre. a different landscape out there now too. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. That that's part of it. You know, it's not yeah. when, when I was using and and when you were using. I think I don't. I just don't think it happened quite as much as, as much it, right yeah, for sure. yeah as it does now, um, which is for part sure. of what is so terrifying. For sure, you know, but. So you talk about in your book, your mom, um, one of the things that went on was she had a serious, serious eating disorder, would starve herself, mm-hmm. um, and that you picked up on that and would cycle through different mm-hmm. eating disorder behavior. Did the, um, were you doing you know, were you restricting or binging and purging before the drugs and did meth stop you from, did meth solve your problem in any ways or what what did that look like? Um, I was definitely, you know, doing the starving and I would chew my food up and spit it out before I swallowed when I was around eight. Wow. And when I found... So that control... It was the control. I I was so out of control. You know, I'd go to church and I was completely just, my whole body was not mine. Yeah. Yeah, and then so I would go home. Young. I would go home, and there'd be police cars out front of my house because my mom was gone again. Mm. And or you know that she would hallucinate and um, you know hide in closets and say there was monsters under the bed and it's so much bizarre behavior. I would get up, she'd be on the floor, crawling around the floor in the middle of the night, sweating, and I just it was so much. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. We yeah. were never allowed to speak about it. You just do not say anything because if you're number one, no one wants to face the reality. And number two, if you say something, you're going to upset mom. If you say this behavior last night was really messed up or that scared me, she's going to get even more depressed and even more, you know, crying. And, you know, so I just had to internalize so much yeah. and yeah. I didn't know how. So yeah, the, I think, I think, you know, I, my mom 
she was super, you know, eating disorders to the point of hospitalizations and stomach tubes. And she would rip them out in the hospital, the tubes. And she had to be, I would go in there and she'd be handcuffed to her hospital bed. Cause she she wanted for anorexia. Yeah. She did not want that tube in there. And she looked like so scary, so skinny and so scary. And I could never be as skinny as her. I'm not built like her. Yeah. And I, I would, I thought she was disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, and so I wanted to be more disciplined, you know, and I thought maybe she'd be more more proud of me and, and give me more attention if I could be smaller. Obviously it didn't work. Um, and obviously in, in trying to get that attention, I then developed my own eating disorder, my own true, you know, it had nothing to do with my mom anymore. It was all about me and what I got out of it. And a lot of times for me, I didn't feel successful. And I think that's common. And a lot of people, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was failing all the time. I I would get shaky if I didn't eat. And then I'd feel, if I swallowed the food, I I just always felt like a failure. I just couldn't do it. I wasn't disciplined enough. You know, I wasn't strong enough. I was piece of crap, you know? And so um, when I found alcohol, I would, I would say that my eating disorder continued on till I think, I think the opiates, the heroin, and, and when I was doing meth, I didn't really think about the uh, um, eating disorder. I was mm-hmm. so f- up mm-hmm. all the time, all the time. I was living in a whole nother world. I was committing crimes. I was not, I was not living in humanity. Mm-hmm. I was an animal for years. I mean, years and years and years. So none of that, like, eating disorder or my body image. I did. I was so out, out of it. So but when I got into recovery, it right. Started. Okay. So that, that was exactly where I was going. So, so for me, my eating disorder was the first attempt to feel better. And then I Absolutely. found drugs and alcohol, which is way easier than eating way better. Well, much, but you definitely feel more successful at your, your practice. Yeah. And, yeah, right. um, and then it came back after I got sure, sober. For yeah. sure. Yeah. My, my eating disorders, you know, when I first got sober, um, well, I was in prison, but, and I was bigger because in prison, you know, you eat a bunch of carbs and, you know, so it really, when I got home and I started to become more aware of my size compared, everybody, all the women in prison are big. So, you know, I wasn't playing much of a comparison game. I was living in a prison world, which is absolutely a whole nother sub universe. <laughs> Yeah. With a, it's not real set life. of set of a crazy set of rules. It's absolutely not real life. Wait, it's so absolutely not. Why did you go? Okay, so one thing. So at twenty five, your boyfriend was stabbed by your ex boyfriend, yeah. which yeah, is murdered. Murdered, right? Which is exactly what happens in heroin and meth land. Like that, I, sure. I, you couldn't make that up, right? That's no. like, of course, that happens. That's 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 what happens. So your boy, was it, did you have anything to do with that? No. Well, that's you know, good. Yeah. Thankfully. Right. Um, no, I was waiting for him to come pick me up and I waited all night long and I, it was not like him. And then, you know, we were staying in this apartment. It was all chaos, all Mexican gang gangs going on so much meth and so much, you know, drugs and paranoia and night, you know, psychosis, psychosis. You know, I was living in absolute psychotic environment and, um, he never came. And then, um, about 10 in the morning, all these cars, boom, 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 unmarked cars lined up outside the apartment. Cops, 
um, investigators, you know, come banging on the door and said, well, I don't care what kind of drugs you have in here. We need to, we, there's something serious. And I sunk to the ground and I knew because the ex-boyfriend, he had tried to kill me. You know, he tried to kidnap me. He had a knife to my throat. He was, he, I would wake up with bullets on my bed. Just the, what you would wake up with bullets on your bed and he hadn't been there. He'd be gone. He, yeah. Or he'd leave in the morning and I'd, and I would, when I'd actually sleep yeah. um, and there would be bullets around my body. Wow. I was, and, so did he kill your boyfriend because he was your boyfriend? You know, I wish I could tell you no, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, um, he stabbed him with the same knife that he had held to my throat two days before that, 35 times and left him up in the hills to die. And um, I ended up having to go to court and testify because I was in custody when his trial came up. And so I know if I had not have been in custody, I would never have gone to court. But right. I was in custody, so they dragged my, me there. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I sat in that courtroom and the, ju- and, the, and the attorneys asked me, you know, do I know any reason why they would have conflict? I said, no. I followed the laws of the street. I did what I always have done, and I said nothing. And I, and I thankfully, they didn't need my testimony. He was convicted, you right, know, 25 right. years to life. And he lost his life, too. He was so, you know, the drugs and just, you know, everybody lost in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he's still sitting in prison to this day. Anyways, um, but I did what I always did. I said nothing because, you know, that's what we do in the street, number one. That's the street code. And, and out of fear and out of just, I never felt worthy enough to make a stand that's going to upset anybody. And maybe that's my dad. Maybe that's my dad. And maybe that's not wanting to cause conflict and just wanting everyone to like you because nobody has ever shown you love, you know? Right. Um, whatever the reason. Yeah. I never said anything. And I've had to go through a lot of guilt about that. And, you know, obviously, you know, my ex is dead. So, but I, I do speak, I have spoken to him in, in ways and I think that he, given the situation, how much fear I was in and the kind of lifestyle we were living, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I, I wish I had handled it different, but I didn't. And so that's part of my story. Yeah. 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 And I mean, <laughs> the outcome for, for, you know, the ex was the, the same. same. Thanks. So, yeah. 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 So I think that is, but I, I get that, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, there's a saying in program, like we don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And right. there's, it takes some of, there's some stuff that it takes a long time to feel that way. Right. If, if ever, sure. if ever, yeah. if, if, if it's only a work in progress that way. Right. Um, sure. so then did you, you went to prison for two years mm-hmm. for drug related, all drug charges, some stolen property. They, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then that was when you made the call to your, your dad. Um, I made the call to my dad actually when I was in a net, I've been in and out of jail lots of times. Okay. So I made the call to my dad in a six month program, which is the same program I was in when I had to go to testify. Got it. I was okay. in a six month behavioral modification program. They do out, out somewhere in California. And, um, that's when I was, you know, had to do all these, you know, therapies and all that stuff. Um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because even though I did not, that's not my clean date, I did not stay clean. Everything I learned about myself in there was huge, Yeah, you know, and I, and I had nowhere to run mm-hmm. and I could not escape the pain and it was f-ing horrible and horrible. Um, but it was so important everything that happened to me there. Yeah. So that's when I called my dad. Then I got out and I ran the streets again. 
I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to, to, I, I really thought this life was all pain. Right. I just thought that's the way yeah. that real happiness wasn't possible for someone like me. Yeah. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. What changed? What, 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 so you, you were in this, you said two years and during the prison, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what, where, where did that shift happen for you? So when I went to prison, you know, um, I started running tobacco illegally because you can't smoke in California prisons. So I started, you know, smuggling tobacco in and I was trading tobacco for pills and, you know, drinking and, you know, living the same way I lived on the streets, only on a much smaller scale, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I I try to tell people, you know, I want to be fair. I was not strung out, but I was using Mm -hmm. and about a year into my sentence, I don't know how else to say it. It's like a divine intervention. I don't know. You know, I was sitting in my cell and I just was surrounded by, you know, metal locker, metal bunks and that walls. I had nothing. I was 34. I had nothing to show for myself of, the, of those years on this earth. None. And I, it just a sensation came over me and a silence filled the room. And it just hit me that, you know, this was it for me. If I didn't do something that like, this was going to be the sum total of my life until my addiction took my life away. And for some reason, this tiny spark ignited inside of me that finally believed just a little bit that I didn't want to die alone on some filthy bathroom McDonald's floor. And I didn't want to overdose on some riverbed as a transient, you know, with her identification pending, because that's the reality of my life. Yeah. That is not far-fetched. That is absolutely the reality of where I go. And it just, I, I, that's my clean date is May 1st, 2011. And I did nothing more really for my recovery than I just did not drink or use after that date and, or, you know, the day before or whatever, but I still existed in prison. I still existed like a tough, hard ass. And, and I was always a push and pull and I wanted to hurt everybody before they could hurt me. And I was horrible to be around. And I was, you know, I hated women. I hated myself. You know, I was, a, you know, verbally and horribly abusive to women. I thought women were weak. That's the only kind of woman I ever saw. And so, you know, I didn't want to be a woman. I wanted to be, you know, a, one of the guys. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of that behavior did not stop. And I wish I could say it did, but it didn't stop when I got clean. <laughs> yeah. In fact, those behaviors probably even grew, you know, bigger because then I didn't have anything to numb. You know, when you take away the only tools I've really used to survive myself, which are drugs and alcohol, I was an absolute mess. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know that that is actually more common than not. Because, you know, you'll see a lot of stuff on social media 
where people are, you know, in their first week or their first, whatever. And there's just like, you know, in the sunshine and they're freaking drinking mocktails and, you know, this is so wonderful. And, and it makes people that are barely fucking able to survive themselves feel like something's wrong with them or their recovery. Well, no, the, the truth is that most of us struggle in the beginning. Oh yeah. For oh, I struggled for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first few years of my recovery, I do not know it hung on by a thread. The only thing I've ever done perfectly is not drink and use in this eight and a half years or whatever. Yes. That's it. That is it. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and, and the interesting thing too, is in the beginning, I mean, for me, it's been, it's, it's a constant, there's a lot of work to be done always, mm-hmm. but you're also doing work for the first time while not altered. And that's really hard. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. really hard. It's really hard, but you know, it's, it kind of, it just comes down to, it's it's really like, it's really hard to stay loaded. It's really hard, you know, like it's really hard to stay in prison. It's really hard. Like all of it's really hard. And so you just choose the better of the really hards and the better of the really hard by the time, you know, you got sober by the time I got sober was not using and doing the work. Yeah. Right. How did you start doing the work given that, you know, in the beginning you were in prison and you didn't, you, you know, still stayed living the same way? When did the, when did program and work and therapy start coming into play? You know, a few years late. I mean, let's see. When I first got out of prison, I went to my parents. I mean, I had nowhere to go. And I went back to that environment of Mm. dysfunction and violence and, you know, abusive language and behavior. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time outside and I, and I went to, you know, AA and NA meetings as much as I could. And I just, a lot of times I just didn't want to go back to prison. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I did not see any happiness for my future. I didn't see that any life was possible for someone like me. I didn't see healing. I didn't see anything. I just didn't want to go back to prison. And so I, sometimes that's all I held on to. And I tell people, hold on to whatever you got to hold on to. I don't give yep. a shit. Don't let anybody tell you it's wrong. Yep. Don't let anybody tell you that's not a reason to get in recovery. I don't give a crap what it is. Hold on to it because it will change. Like as time went on and every day that I didn't use or drink and every day that I just like, I opened my eyes to like, this is not a healthy life. I don't want to live like my parents and yeah. my brother. I didn't know how to get out of it, but I just knew I didn't want it. And so just slowly things, you know, transpired and, you know, my eating disorders came up, you mm. know, and I, and I didn't do anything about those. I, you know, started, you know, the bulimia and starving myself. And I kind of just, you know, that's a torture in itself. And I just kind of let it go because, you know, as long as I wasn't drinking and using, then totally. you know, it's all fair game. Yep. Totally. <laughs> you know, you pick the least of the evils yep. or whatever. Yep. But, you know, as you heal, it's like, I don't want to be, you know, a lot of my recovery, my entire life has been survival. Okay. That's like pretty much, that's the only word you could really use about my entire life. And that was pretty much the only word you could use for the first few years of my recovery. I survived. I survived it. I managed to not drink and use. I managed to not kill myself and not go back to prison. But my life was so, so suffocated in so much pain and so much that I did not know how to face it you know, and, um, it took a long time and I got pregnant with my son and I 
nothing screams feminism or femininity, sorry, than being pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. And, um, I came face to face with my women issues, like a train hit me <laughs> because I, I did not want people to see my stomach. I was not ashamed of my, of, of my son, but I was ashamed of the womanliness of myself. Mm. And it, and I started to really think about that. What, what's that about? Like, why, you know, what, so I had to kind of like, you know, I worked with a therapist and a sponsor and, you know, a lot of writing on my own and stuff. And I really realized like, you know, I have a abusive example for a mother. I was raised in a cult where women were way less than the men and, you know, silenced themselves. I then grew to do the same exact thing, mm-hmm. keep my mouth shut. And, and women in, in the drug world are all bad hoes. You know, all my examples of women have mm-hmm. been, you know, not so great, you know? And so I decided, I started finding women that I, that I admired and respected. And then I started as, you know, it's kind of like the trustworthy thing. Like the more trustworthy you become, the easier it is to actually trust other people. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing with women that as I started to kind of like realize that that has nothing to do with women. And that has nothing to do with me. And I it just like, and I saw women that I actually respected. It just kind of started to blossom. And it's taken me a long time, you know, to really feel that, you know, I am proud to be a woman today. And I am today, you know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, women are, you know, incredible creatures. I don't hate men. I, you know, I get that a lot. You hate men. I do not hate men. I love everybody, you know? But if you knew where I came from, right, right, to be able to say that I am a feminist, that I that I actually love women, and I love being a women a woman amongst women, is so huge for me that you know I don't think people can grasp that. You know, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who come in, a lot of women, I should say, that come in. Af- you know, really, it's afraid of other women, but but. Mm-hmm not like, you know, I was like, all my friends were guys and, and, you know, I wanted to, you know, like the whole thing. Right. And because women, I think it was some, in some ways, like I expected guys to hurt, to be, you know, to cheat or to this or to that, to be untrustworthy. But I really wanted women to be trustworthy in the few times that I had tried and I got burned. And I think you just sort of write the whole thing off. Yeah. Um, Cause you, cause guys, the guys rules were easier to play by. They were more yeah. straightforward, um, right. you know, sick, but straightforward. Right. Uh, so I think we have these, you know, I think we, I think a lot of us come in with that and it's important to talk about and important to talk about that. It's a slow transition and that, you know, especially de- depending on how long you've been living that way and all these things and to be gentle and patient with yourself to, you know, that progress, not perfection, making small changes on a daily basis and just keep moving forward. Yeah. You know, my vagina has always hurt me. <laughs> right. It, that I could not even say the word. In right. fact, right now I hesitate, hesitated for a minute. I'm always very self-aware of myself, you know, it, yeah. I still have things to work on, but you know, it was always a source of pain. And, um, even in, in addiction, you know, I was assaulted and, um, you know, so you grow to hate it. Mm. Not everybody maybe, but that's the direction I went. You know, I I didn't, I did not want to, you know, some people of, you know, childhood sexual abuse, they use it as a tool because that's how they've gotten love 
or the other, I went the other direction. I hated it. I didn't want anyone to see it. I didn't want to even have one. I just... I had, um, I spoke with a woman who felt that way and having children, birthing children was a really difficult experience for her, yeah. which I found interesting is that, did that, cause you talked about the femininity mm-hmm. as it related to pregnancy. So just curious, was that, uh, a part of it having actually giving birth? With my son. Yeah. I, I hated sitting there with my legs up like that. And, um, I hated people staring at it you know, doctors coming in and out and then touching it. It just, it was a difficult situation for me. But now I had four years between my son and my daughter and a lot of healing. Yeah. And a lot of my daughter's, my birthing, my giving birth to my daughter was a beautiful experience. Right, right. Totally. Completely totally. different. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm glad, I'm glad. And, yeah. I, you know, in the contrast, because that was an interesting thing. I didn't experience um, that. And so... A really interesting thing to me that oh yeah that brings up a lot and and I yeah. do because it is like you know you there's nothing to to get you to face childhood sexual trauma like getting pregnant mm-hmm. and having children and the whole process of that and all prenatal care and oh I mean totally. it's it's a very invasive and you are the host and your body is you know, a, a tool meant for, you know, it's a very, it's a very intense experience. It hit me hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it hit me hard. And, and, you know, um, I did not talk about it because I was worried if I spoke about my fears that people would be, I already thought people were afraid what kind of mother I'd be because, you know, mm. I only had a few years clean and, you know, from where I come from, you know, mm-hmm. to think about me being a mother, plus I was so aggressive and so, you know, hardcore, you know, and rightfully so. I'm sure the mothers in, in my AA or NA meetings are, were like secretly horrified that this gangster <laughs> bitch was going to be a mother and what kind of mother I'd be, you know? So I didn't talk about anything. I was in fear that I would molest my own children. Right, right. Um, I was in fear of, you know, what kind of, was I going to be a mother like my mother? Right. Am I going to go use again? Am I going to, because I know if I use, I will use my children away like yeah. that. Yeah. And even today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Boom. I'll be gone. And I'll, and I'll, trust me, I will mourn over it, but I will be gone. But, you know, all these fears, and I didn't say anything. I just kind of internalized them. And I read a lot of books. And I, I think just every day that I, that I, as soon as my son was born, I looked at his face and I, and I knew what love, what maternal love is. Mm-hmm. And, um, what did that bring up? It, it brought up, I felt sad that, that I never had that, you know, and I felt sad that, that my mom can't feel that. And and then it just, you know, I just knew that I'm okay. Like that. I am not gonna, I am, I'm not damaged goods. I'm not too broken to heal and I'm not too broken to become a mom. And I, I'm telling you, when they wheeled me out after we were, I was giving birth, I gave birth and I had my son and then, you know, the next day or whatever, you know, we're going home and they push you in the mm-hmm. wheelchair, you know, first mm-hmm. with the baby. I was so, I wanted to get in that car and get out of there so bad because I was like, if they find out who I am, they're going to take mm-hmm. my baby. Mm-hmm. I just want to get out of here. And, and I did, I mean, I just, but as soon as I got home and like, you know, the first night, you know, the, I remember the next morning 
like just being just him and I, you know, there's so many people, you know, friends. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, um, <laughs> I'm trying to bond, you know, but um, I, I, I remember- you clearly didn't have twins. No, my God. You, <laughs> I'm like, I don't please even know help. how that, yeah, right? Yeah, for you, yeah. You're like, please don't leave. Don't, don't leave. leave. Don't I get leave. it, yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. But um, yeah, I just remember sitting there looking at him and, and just, I, I felt like I just, I'm okay. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that it, that is so important because you feel so broken, so damaged, so dirty, all the things we feel, whether it be from childhood or what we, the wreckage of our addictions, to have that sense come over you that has nothing to do with anything external. It's all just inside to know that like, I'm okay and I'm capable of becoming whatever it is that I feel in my heart. And, and that was a huge moment for me. And I, and I never told anybody I had that moment. You know, I just had it. It sounds like it was the first time you didn't feel broken. I did not. I felt like, you know, I'm capable. Yeah. I felt, I just felt, never felt capable of, of achieving anything. I, I would watch people, you know, have lives and I just never thought that was possible for me, for someone like me. Yeah. I just yeah. never did. It's amazing what happens to us in recovery. It really is. It's <sighs> I'm just... telling you. What so what happened between the four years? Tell us about what happened between the four years um, where your son and your daughter were born, and how because it sounds like there was a there was a lot of work done there. A lot, yeah. I, I you know I worked a lot on you know my addiction story. You know I really had to to kind of like backtrack through the forest of shit, you know, and so my addiction story I did, you know is not really that hard for me. I was raped in my addiction. So I did have, you know, I have had to work through that. But the reality is that all of my addictions and behaviors are all manifestations of my childhood. Right. And so every, every time I travel back, I find myself on the, laying on the floor in front of my mom's closed bedroom door and not even the, the molestation stuff. Right. It actually begins before then. Mm. and just wanting her to love me. And so I've done a lot of like inner child work and I, I still do. None mm-hmm. of this is a, is like an ended. I, I continue, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. I don't want to be the same woman next year. I am right now talking to you. Yep. You're like, competing, let, competing I with just, the better version. I Every day you want to be a better growing. version. Yeah. Every day. I just want to be, keep growing and keep being more free and you know, come up, and I learn new stuff all the time. But yeah, so I've had to do a lot of inner child work. And one thing I do is, you know, I have I have picture, a few pictures of myself when I was about five, which is when it really, uh, my mom stuff and the molestation, you know, it just really hit a hit. You know, it's bad. And I envision and I meditate and I envision picking her up and holding her in the sunshine and telling her that you know she is good and she is worthy and none of that's her fault and i do this almost every day mm. and i love her the way she should have been and what's happening is i'm like reparenting myself yeah and without realizing it it's like i'm bringing myself back up as i should have been which is and also coming around and healing me as the woman i am today if that makes sense mhm from both angles yes And 
I, I just, man, anybody that has childhood traumas and there's so many traumas that, and, you know, um, it does not have to be as horrific as what I'm saying. It could be a lot. There's a lot of things. Um, it's very difficult to talk about. It's very difficult to talk about the, your mother wound. Um, it's very complicated. Um, but I highly suggest looking into inner child healing and inner child yeah. work because that is what you need. Get off the addiction part for a minute, because really, if you just get clean and sober, that's beautiful. And it's the first step to healing your life. But all that that lives just underneath that surface, Mm -hmm. if you do not fix that, you're either going to use again or worse, you're going to live clean and sober and in a lot of pain. Yep. I'd rather use really personally. Me Me too. And then you're going to, just like we're saying, generational, you're going to inflict the sickness, you know, sickness, just, you know, onto your spouse, your kids, everyone you touch. I just, you know, forget it, you know, clean and sober, but then really get down to the roots of why, why not like Johan Hari says, not why the addiction, but why the pain? I think he says that maybe it's the other guy. I don't know. Anyways, but why the pain, you know? Yeah, yeah, because that's because as we talked about the our addiction, our eating disorder, and our addiction were survival mechanisms that worked. You know, that's something yeah. we forget to talk about, especially you know in program and therapy. Like, mm-hmm. it was a very effective way of getting through, and it worked for many years. That's yeah. that's the piece. You know, when I talk to people, I'm like, look your alcoholism was a fantastic tool for many years and and it worked well. And then at some point you transitioned, you crossed that imaginary line we talk about and it stopped working and it became yep. the problem. Right. That, that's that's alcoholism, right? It becomes the problem. But in right. the beginning, it's like actually the solution. So right. what is it the solution for, right? right. That's And that's what you're talking about is what yep. Why, why start? Not why, we know why you finished, right? We all, we yeah. all know why we got sober. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Pretty, it was pretty, you know. It was pretty clear. Pretty, you know, it made itself really clear, right? Yeah. No one comes in on a winning streak, but why start? Right, for sure. I, I think, you know, I get a lot, when I speak about this, you know, I get some slack from moms who say, but my son is a heroin addict and I was a great mom. And he had never had this or that or whatever, you know, I think people feel attacked. So I want to make sure and say that, yeah, there is a small percentage of people that get into a, you know, chemical dependence and then have to turn towards street stuff. You know, there is a difference between that and people that are already exhibiting those behaviors long before drugs and alcohol ever came into their life. Yeah, but you know, I, I just, the moms are always telling me that stuff. Oh, my son is, I was a great mom. Right, but she may, you know, I think there's something here. Here's what's, here's what's important. I, I have, you know, twin boys, they're fraternal. Right. They're two different personalities, right? And my great motherhood to one may not be what the other needs. Right. True. And a great mom is the best mom that I can, can be, be. Right. right? It doesn't mean that it gives the child everything they need. It doesn't mean that they put them in a school that that is the one that that helps them grow at the rate they need to grow. It right. doesn't mean that society hasn't scarred them. It doesn't mean that dad is a great dad. It doesn't mean right. a thousand different things. So, you know, I, I would really push back against that, Um that, you know, you can be a wonderful, 
you could be a perfect parent. You just could be a perfect parent for the wrong child. And that right. might not be what that child needs. And people, you know, you have the, the, the genetic predisposition and then something in life or some things in life don't feel the way that that person needs to feel. So, you know, again, right. as, as a parent, I, I personally, as a parent and an alcoholic and a drug addict and eating disorder and probably 10,000 other anonymous programs, right. <laughs> right. I, could, I will eventually probably end up in. I can tell you that it's very clear to me that I'm going to be the best mom that I can be. And I know that it won't always be exactly what both of them need at the right exactly. time you know, at the right intensity and whatever. And, you know, that, and that's just part of letting go and, and being, you know, life on doing life on life's terms. Right. The important thing is that your child or adult or whatever, is that they're, you know, getting help or whatever it is that they need, not. And they know it and they know that I love them. Right. I'm telling you, (laughs) coming from, somebody that was never told that and never felt that how important that is. Yeah. Um, it's huge. And I am constantly showing my children and telling my children and telling them how proud I am of them. And, you know, I think we all probably do the things that we feel we lack, we lack, you know, right. but it's so important because if they don't feel it from the home, they're going to look for it somewhere. Right. For sure. And whether and that if they're looking for it, yeah. Dudes yeah. or girlfriends or, you know, oh God, the and list it, goes on. Yeah. <laughs> All the anonymous programs. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, if they're looking for it, then it probably isn't going to be healthy because they're looking for it outside of the home. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm always, you know, having a daughter is so different than, ha- you know, my son, I just, they're totally different. Yeah. And like, not just boy, girl, but just personalities and needs and, and sensitivities and stuff, you know, but one thing I'm really with my daughter, I think coming from, you know, being in recovery from eating disorders and putting so much emphasis on how I look and what size I am, Mm. having anything to do with the quality of who I am or, you know, is that I really, I mean, that's just like, Oh, if my, my thighs are smaller, I must be smarter. I mean, I don't hundred percent. I completely get that does not even compute. It does not make sense, but it, it makes complete sense to me. And it's oh, yeah. something that I still have to be very, very, very careful about, you know, Oh, oh yeah. As soon as if I, you know, yeah. Anyway. I, I, I remember getting a B and thinking that if I were skinnier, I would have gotten an A and then thinking to myself, right? what does that even mean? That is so insane, right? But I get <laughs> I it. I really thought that. Yep. It's true. It's like if skinnier equals happier, skinnier equals more successful, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, the list goes on. So I'm really, you know, I try to encourage, you know, focus on my daughter's other qualities and just being beautiful, you know, because, you know, I want her to be feel, and and I don't know if it'll work and I'm just praying it does, you know, and I, but I, you know, I want her to know that she's smart and funny and caring and without always just, you know, people, Oh, she's so cute. She's so beautiful. But yeah, she is, but she's a lot more than that Mm -hmm. because I know that there's gonna be so much pressure on her anyways, without even having to do with me. I mean, it's like insane. Yeah. My poor kids and your poor kids, because (laughs) they're not going to be able to get away with much. Like I am, I don't care if it was years ago or not. I I, like, I'm on it, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to, I know they might get away with some stuff, but man, they're not going to be able to get away with like, I mean, I lied and did all that stuff. My parents were so involved in their own. They weren't present 
Right. They weren't and present. And we are in recovery and sober and clean and present. And so like, you know, there were so many signs I was showing as a little girl that were just completely brushed off and un- it went unnoticed. You know, when you're, when, when you're in recovery and you get to be a sober parent, like you just, you know, you're present to see the little changes and like the little, you know, differences. And so many parents, even maybe sober ones, but that aren't in recovery, just maybe ignore normies. They don't, they're missing out on so much. I think like there's, I think there's a book called the 12 steps for everyone or something. And not that you have to do the 12 steps, but just like, like for everybody to be more self-aware would just benefit this world so much. Oh, for sure. I think. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody can find, uh, you know, I mean the, the, the anonymous programs, I think a lot of people struggle, right. With like the God part. And, you know, it's, what's funny to me is like, if you can belong to a anonymous program, having been in a religious cult as a child Mm -hmm. and having trauma from that, then I feel like anyone can because, you know, it's, it's, it's so many of the objections are, well, you have to believe in God, they're religious, they're a cult, whatever, you know, brainwash all the different things. And, you know, for me, and I don't know what your take on it is, but for me, I just needed a group of people that understood me. And if they wanted to use the word God, I got to the point where I just ignored it and pretended it wasn't there and not happening and was like, I'm going to believe whatever I'm going to believe. And um, as long as you guys aren't super weird and crazy, then um, I need the help. I'll take the community. I think if you're searching for a way out, you can always find a way out. That's what I think. I think if you're searching for a reason not to have to be there, whether that be because you're not wanting to be clean and sober or you're not wanting to do the work and face yourself or whatever, you'll find a thousand reasons not to be in a thousand places. Mm -hmm. But when you're really freaking desperate and and you're really like, there's nowhere else but, but up, you know, like you're just so down that you're willing to, like you said, ignore the God part or Mm -hmm. ignore the, this part. And you just hang on to the fact that you actually have a group of people that are not loaded and stealing from you, (laughs) you know, like, wow, that's a mind blowing concept when you're first getting clean and sober. Totally. You know, they actually like, you know, are not trying to rob you. There's nobody showing up and, you know, trying to steal your drugs and all that stuff. Like what, what a concept, like, you know, whatever it is you got to hold on to, like I said, just hold on to it. And, and a lot of times people evolve out of 12 steps and maybe they wanted, you know, for me, I, I still am a member of NANAA, but I also have expanded so far around that. Mm-hmm. Tell because, us about that. So for me, you know, I, I, I am a member of NANAA. I also respect a lot of other paths to recovery mm-hmm. and in recovery. I do a lot of other things that to heal myself, like inner child, you know, my inner child work. I've done some EMDR therapies. I've done microcurrent, um, neurotherapy, whatever it is. Neurofeedback. Um, thank you. The microcurrent one, not the old school one where you watch the screen and right, right, right. Yeah, that's like bogus. But, um, because <laughs> you know, as I'm learning that talking about trauma does not heal trauma. And as I'm learning that actually trauma is stored in your nervous system, mm-hmm. that's where PTSD yep. is stored and CPTSD yep. and all this stuff. And talking about it is very important part of your healing and all that stuff. But to actually heal your nervous system, you, you're going to have to adventure out of mm-hmm. the standard. And so although I do talk about all this stuff in AA and NA, 
and they don't particularly care for me very much because I am one that does not care about, I think everything should be, I don't believe anything should be like an outside issue. And I think everything is the issue. So tell people what outside issue mean, what you mean by Meaning, that. Meaning, um, you know, we should only talk about drugs and alcohol. Right. You know, so obviously separately, but yeah, you know, that's it. Stick to the alcohol story if you're an AA. Stick to the drug story if you're an NA. Well, I like I said, I think that is just the surface, and I think people are wounded way, way deeper than that. And I have no problem with sharing that. Yeah. And sharing that about the pain that brought me to my addiction and sharing about that, that there's nothing wrong with anybody if they've been sober for 10 years and they're hurting so bad, but they've never dealt with their childhood stuff that that's okay. Totally. That I'm going to explain to you why. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I expanded so far out meditation and yoga and all these things that are considered maybe an outside, you know, resources. I, I like I just went completely blank on the Buddhist, um, uh, recovery, Dharma, uh, refuge, refuge, yeah, refuge, all that stuff. I think it's so great. I love it all. I have a great big toolbox cause I got a great big messed up mind. I need a lot of tools and yeah. I think that's okay. You know, I love the 12 steps. I love the fellowship. I love, you know, I needed everything that they had to offer and I still do, but I also think that it would be ignorant of me to just only do that. Yeah. And just hold on to that. And that's it. And I'm not going to, and a lot of them live like that. I'm not going to venture out. Nope. Nope. If it's not AA, if it's not a 12 step, it was, I'm not doing it. You know, right. well, open up a little bit because this world has so much to offer and there's, uh, you know, expand your healing. It, you know, for me, recovery is all about healing. It's not about not using and not drinking. Right. You, you can't heal while you're, while you're using and, and drinking and <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all goes together. You know, but to me, I don't focus on the addiction and the alcoholism. In the beginning, it's important because you could barely manage to wake up without, uh, I mean, I get it. But as, as you know, you evolve and your recovery evolves, it becomes so much bigger than that. Yep. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think it's an advanced recovery, right? Like, right. you know, as, as one of my, my friends says, varsity recovery, where there you, you move into, um, you move into a, a, a greater depth. And because yeah. in the beginning, it's like just, you know, Absolutely. going to bed sober and, oh, yeah. you know, and then it's quality and then it's, you know, and then so work in the, and that timeline is different for different people. For sure. So I, I completely agree. And I think it's important to, I think it's important to branch out and have, you know, if you're not having fun in sobriety and you're not um, healing and continuing to do the work, you're probably leaving a lot on the table. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I want to, you know, I want to, I don't just want to be sober. I want to be like, you know, happy and, and, and living out of my purpose from, and, and, and a good mom and a happy friend. And, a you know, there's so many parts of me that, you know, I want to explore things I don't even know about yet. You know, yeah. just, the, the blessing of recovery is that I actually don't wake up today. I don't wake up just barely treading water. Totally. Like today I wake up with the, you know, desire to do more and to like, you know, expand more and, you know, figure out more stuff and write more and, and, you know, speak to more people. And like, I'm willing to learn, you know, I used, like I said about the whole, you know, nervous system, you know, I'm willing to learn more Yeah. because if I just shut myself off in a box, you know, then that's just where I'm at, it's where I'm at. And that's as far as I get. And that's as healed as I get. And that's, you know, I don't want to live like that. 
But you got to find, you know, wherever you go, you have to find your people, right? That for fit sure. for you. And whether that's your church, your, yep. uh, your, you know, 12 step meeting, your school, you know, you yeah. can find the coolest, most loving, accepting school, and you're still going to find a clique of people who are doing sure. it in a way you don't like. And so I think the, the biggest point is find your people. Yeah. Find your tribe, find, find, mm-hmm. you know, find those people because there is a group of people that's doing it the way that you want to do it. Absolutely. And, and every meeting. Ignore the rest. To. Exactly. I just, you know, I'm here to save my life mm-hmm. and I'm here to, you know, share my story. I'm not here to make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Um, although I wanted to for a long time, I know I cannot. And, um, so yeah, do what works for you, what's, you know, freeing you and, and you will find people like the more that you, you know, exist in the way that you want to be. It's like, I, I found this circle of people and some of them are complete AA people and some of them do not do the 12 steps at all, whatever it is. But I found this circle of people that it's like my family. Mm-hmm. I don't have a family. Like I don't have a natural blood related family. But what I have is even more beautiful. Like I have people in my life that like support me and they, they encourage me to be whatever it is I want to be, you know, and, and on a bad day, they're freaking proud of me when I get out of bed and on a great day, you know, and they're just, you're not afraid to see someone else. You know, we're not afraid to see each other shine. We're not like afraid to compliment each other. And it's just like, you know, I don't know if that's what families are like. I'm not sure. I don't know how that works, but I know how I want my children and our little family to be. And Mm I emulate the women that I respect today. I don't have the mother that, you know, I I don't, I don't want to be a mom like my mom. So I find other mothers that I respect and I pick, you know, it's like anything like with recovery. I just take pieces that feel good in my soul Mm -hmm. and I take other pieces from another person and I just, and I'm creating this woman And that's why my book is called Shape of a Woman. It's about, you know, how I'm rebuilding my life, not by becoming someone new. I'm building her by all the things that once hurt me so much, Mm -hmm. you know, and that pain is the, is where all the power to change your life is. It's in that pain that you're like, you know, I was willing to die to avoid that pain. But today, if I feel anything come up, I go straight there. I go straight down. I dig down to the deep, deep end because there must be something I left under there. And that, that stuff is not to be avoided. That's the gold, man. Right. That's dig like it out. I Don't let it get infected. Dig it out and bring it home Yep. and then learn from it and grow from it. You know, it's like, I'm always finding stuff. Yeah. You know, I really am. I'm always finding stuff. Yep. The have, journey's re- never over. Never over. I don't want it to be over. Yeah. I really don't. I don't want it. I don't, I, I'm not like, you know, looking for this end of the road, like where I really don't. I hope I'm like, you know, 80 years old, still trying to do this. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't, I love life today, even the bad, even the hard days, you know, and I have hard days. I have, I still have, you know, nightmares sometimes. And, you know, that set me back. And, you know, I have days where I don't feel like I'm good enough and, or I'm, you know, who am I to be speaking to people? I'm just a nobody, you know, all that negative self-talk. And I have days that, that I struggle through, but I just don't give up, man. And, and I, cause I know that like, those are the days that I learned so much about myself. And those are the days I share, because I know that to feel like you're alone in something 
That's yeah. the worst. Oh yeah. I want people to know they're not alone. Yeah. And if that means I share and say the word vagina <laughs> on a podcast, <laughs> you go girl. I'm freaking going because <laughs> I want people to know that they are not weird or odd, that there are people out there that are your people Yep. that yep. love you and understand and like, you know, yeah. I love it. Well, you are an amazing woman and your book Shape of a Woman by Jen Elizabeth can be found on Amazon. Yeah. And um, I'm also incredibly impressed with your two-year-old daughter who made very little noise. I'm telling Um, you, I'm afraid to look over this desk on what she's colored, but she's done very well. Yeah. I'm so impressed. I'm so (laughs) impressed. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing your story and doing your work out loud. It's really important. We need people like you and um, you're a wonderful example of what all different kinds of recovery and, and just changing your life can look like. Oh, thank you. And so, you know, you guys were like the first, um, I think one of the first recovery accounts I ever inter- I ever actually started really following. Oh, wow. Ryan Rock. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. a long time, I think. What is your um, Instagram handle so people can follow your journey? Okay. It's resurrection with a K. So R-E-S-U-R-R-E-K. T-I-O-N underscore of underscore me all across the board. Like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that's the same. Okay. Same. Okay. Same thing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you and can't wait to follow your journey till you are 80 years old and still trying to uncover, discover, and discard. Yes. Yes. Amen. I hear you. I'm there. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 